Well, hello there, everybody. Welcome back to Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky, a podcast where we talk about wonky animal facts. I'm your host, Olivia, and each episode I will share with you a different weird fact from the animal kingdom. So yes, we are finally back from the hiatus. The semester has wrapped up. My field season has started back up. Uh, So that means I'm getting back out on the boat again. Summer is about here, but we are back in... We'll probably still be having episodes every other week because in about a month, my field season is about to be getting pretty crazy with some super early days. So I'm expecting to be very tired. So we're going to stick with every other week, so see how this goes. Um, But we will be back for now with no long breaks in the foreseeable future. But in celebration of the summer season just around the corner... Starting next episode, we will be having a super duper fun series on some of our favorite springtime parasites. So if you want to give yourself the heebie-jeebies and the nice creepy crawly feeling, uh, feel free to stick around for that and tune on in. Now in some other fun podcast news, you can also find the podcast on some more apps and can now be streamed just about wherever you stream your podcasts. So, which really just means I press some other buttons in Podbean, and I'm still waiting on a few. I'm not really sure what Pandora is still processing since I told them to review my podcast last August, but that's okay. But now, in addition to Spotify, Amazon Music, and Apple Podcast, we're also on iHeartRadio, Samsung Podcast, and a few other places. Now, for this week's Getting to the Episode... We are talking about a long-awaited critter that is well-known for its ability to camouflage and rapidly change colors. No, we're not talking about chameleons, but they are often referred to as the chameleon of the sea and can change their entire appearance to seamlessly match their surroundings in mere seconds, despite being colorblind. If you guessed cuttlefish, you would be correct. Cuttlefish are a group of cephalopods, so they're related to squids and octopuses, and all cuttlefish are in order Sepida. There are about 120 different species of cuttlefish found along the coast of Asia, Western Europe, throughout the Mediterranean Sea, and then the African and Australian coast. So really, the only places you can't find cuttlefish are in North and South America, And we think that has something to do with um, ocean spreading and all that sort of good stuff. Uh, For a tiny bit more taxonomy and how they're grouped, cephalopods are mollusks, which makes them related to clams and snails. Even though they do look completely different, they do have some similarities that put them in that mollusk phylum. One is having a shell, and while some cephalopods really no longer have their shell, cuttlefish do in fact have an internal shell called a cuttlebone. If you have birds, you may be familiar with cuddle bones. They're a pretty common thing to give to them as a calcium supplement and, of course, that enrichment bonus. Cuttlefish do have a pretty wide array of predators, um, including marine mammals like seals and dolphins, uh, sharks, other fish, seabirds, and even other cuttlefish. This is because cuttlefish will eat pretty much whatever they can get their tentacles on, So, including other cuttlefish, they'll eat anything from small mollusks like clams, crabs, shrimp, fish, octopus, and worms. 
Different cuttlefish species can range in size from 6 to 20 inches, or if you are metric, 15 to 50 centimeters. So the bigger the cuttlefish, the bigger the prey it can handle, and the more, or at least the bigger diversity of things that they'll eat. So really, a bigger cuttlefish will indeed go after a smaller cuttlefish. However, a 20-inch cuttlefish still isn't really all that big, so they do need to be able to hide from larger fishy predators. So cuttlefish have evolved to have an amazing ability to camouflage into their surroundings in order to blend in, disappear, and avoid predators. In the world of animal camouflage, there are a couple of different broad categories of camouflage. This is static and dynamic camouflage. Static camouflage is going to be the type that we are familiar with as land critters because this is what a lot of animals on land use. So things like zebras, owls, and even people when we go out hunting, um, oftentimes people will dress in that green shaded camouflage pattern. So this type of camouflage, um, static camouflage, is when you have a specific color pattern like stripes, spots, or mottled patterns in order to blend into whatever your surrounding is, like the trees. So it relies very heavily on the animal being against a specific background or in a particular environment in order to blend in with their surroundings. So if we're thinking about owls, for instance, they can be nearly impossible to find in trees but if you bring them out of the forest and something like into a green grassy lawn, if they were pouncing on a mouse, suddenly the owl is going to stand right out. Their camouflage fails them in a more green environment. Um, but in a tree, like I said, they'll be pretty hard to find. Cuttlefish, on the other hand, along with some other cephalopods, they use dynamic camouflage. So this is where the animal is going to change their color patterns and in the case of cephalopods, even their skin texture, in order to blend into whatever environment they're in. This allows them to be able to camouflage with nearly any environment that they could find themselves in instead of standing out like a sitting duck whenever they're not in the habitat that they're camouflaged for. So how do cuttlefish manage this? What sort of systems do they have in order to produce all of the different arrays of colors and patterns and textures that they could encounter in the ocean. So cuttlefish have three different types of cells responsible for color changes, and these are all occurring in three different layers within their skin. In the first layer, we have chromatophores, then we have iridophores, and then at the very bottom, leucophores. Chromatophores are the pigment-containing cells, so these are the ones largely responsible for the direct color changes, so if we're going from a light brown to black or white, this is going to be largely responsible for those. There are several different pigments here that allow for these different color combinations. We have pigments for yellows and oranges, reds, and even browns and black. So these chromatophores, they are essentially membrane sacs of pigment surrounded by muscles. In order to get the different color expressions, the muscles around the sacs are contracted and relaxed in order to expand the cell and allow each or and allow different pigments to be exposed. And as different pigments are exposed, we're going to get different color patterns. Some cuttlefish can have upwards of 200 different chromatophores or can have upwards of 200 chromatophores per square millimeter, which gives them the ability to have incredible detail in color modeling 
as well as the ability to have different areas of their body be different colors since the chromatophores can be controlled separately. So when these chromatophores are closed or retracted, the iridophores and the leucophores are then exposed. The iridophores can create iridescent colors, hence the name iridophore, through assortments of stacked crystalline plates in these cells. These crystalline plates can reflect and scatter light in order to create metallic and iridescent sheens, but they can also produce different blues or blue-green colors. So if a cuttlefish finds itself uh, swimming in the open ocean, they would likely want to close their chromatophores in order to expand the iridophores to allow them to blend in with the blue of the rest of the water behind them. Iridophores are also capable of polarizing light, which may actually increase the ability of the cuttlefish to go undetected by fishy predators or helping to in blend in with the contrast of the bottom. We'll talk about how polarized light helps in a little bit later. Lastly, we have the leucophores. Leucophores are pretty similar to iridophores in that they are also a structural reflector sort of cell. So due to the crystalline structures, they reflect light. That's really what that means. It's not a separate pigment, it's due to structure. However, the crystals in leucophores are different in that the crystals are organized differently than they are in iridophores and really are just more organized, so they don't diffract the light quite as much when the light is reflected. So what this would mean is that in, um, if white light is being reflected off, the leucophore will reflect white light. In red light situations, they would reflect red light, and so on and so forth. Now, along with the different pigment types, cuttlefish are also capable of changing the texture of their skin. So if the um, if the cuttlefish is hiding amongst coral or algae, they can change their skin to have a much more bumpy and irregular appearance, and they will also arrange their tentacles in a way to give them the appearance of waving algae in the water. So if these tentacles are amongst algae, they'll change their skin to be bumpy and irregular, but if they are amongst gravel or sand, they can be perfectly smooth in order to blend in with that environment. So between the different types of pigment cells, along with the ability to control their skin texture, depending on the cuttlefish species, there are about 30 to 50 different pattern components that cuttlefish can use to produce different body patterns. So researchers have estimated that if each of these individual components were independently controlled, so in a situation where the cuttlefish is actively saying, okay, I want this particular skin texture on this tentacle, this one over here, I want these chromatophores to have this color, but the ones over on my um, other tentacles to have this color. The cuttlefish would be capable of producing two to the 30th different patterns. So in form of numbers that we directly know what they mean, this would be over 1 billion different pattern combinations. However, researchers have noticed that we really only see a few different types of patterns in cuttlefish with both light and dark variations. The researchers Hanlon and Messenger in 1988 really did a lot of the initial classifications of the different patterns that we see in cuttlefish, and these pattern classifications still seem to be holding strong today. They're still used quite frequently to um, describe what patterns we see, 
And now a lot of the research is focused on figuring out how exactly they can produce all of these patterns and what they can see and what they can't see and what goes into creating the different patterns. So now what are all of these different classifications? We have six patterns that have been termed chronic patterns. These are uniform, stipple, model, which can both be light and dark model, disruptive, and then the zebra stripe. Uniform, modeling, and, disrupt and disruptive are the main three pattern combinations that are used for camouflage purposes, with the zebra stripe being that kind of fancy striping pattern. Um, this is often used to attract a mate and can also create the pattern that cuttlefish use to seemingly hypnotize their prey. These different patterning types are used in different situations. The uniform pattern is a reasonably self-explanatory pattern. The cuttlefish will take on one pretty plain color and would be used on a plain background. So if a cuttlefish wanted to hide out in some sand, it would likely go with a uniform color pattern and take on a drab sandy color. The modeling patterns are going to be used on more patterned surfaces, so maybe a coarse sand, maybe in some broken up shell bed along some shell hash. Then disruptive patterns are going to be, or these are your more complex patterns, these are used in areas that have discrete discernible objects. So something like larger pebbles, or when a crazy researcher takes you from the ocean and puts you in a tank with a checkerboard pattern to see how you handle it. You know, super relatable situations. Disruptive patterns are a little bit trickier to explain what they look like, but they tend to be more blocky or striped color patterns. So if you take a look at the Instagram page, Quirky Creepy Freaky Pod, the first cuttlefish image in the post from the other day is going to be one that's using a disruptive color pattern. So these disruptive patterns may not always be a perfectly seamless blending in with the, with the environment, but the point here is more to break up the appearance of the body shape of the cuttlefish in order to distort its appearance, distort the outline, and make it harder for the predators to detect. If you can't really see what your prey is shaped like, you're more likely not going to go after it. So with to make each of these different camouflage patterns, obviously they need to be able to detect what their pattern looks like, the different colors, all of that information, in order to be able to blend in so perfectly all of the time. Now, remember though that cuttlefish, along with other cephalopods, are colorblind. So they can't see the different colors the way that we can. How on earth then are they able to match their background so well down to the color if they can't see what that color is? There are a lot of different observational cues that they use, and there are some other things that they can detect that we can't. One thing that they use is the size of objects, the depth of the objects, and with that they can sense the layering along um, due to differences in light and dark, and what the edges are like. So that's going to get them largely to the category of what pattern they're going to use. So if there are larger objects with a lot of depth, chances are they are going to go with the disruptive pattern. But if there are larger objects that don't really have a lot of depth, they're not detecting much overlap between the different components of the bottom, the cuttlefish will probably go with more of a model pattern. Cuttlefish are also capable of sensing the reflectance of the background, so this is going to give them some general idea of color as well as light and dark. 
Since color is reflected light, they're just not going to see it as brown like we would or like yellow. They're really just going to see kind of the different shades. They can also see pattern orientation as well as the polarization of light. Now being able to sense polarization is going to add a different level of intensity and color to the light. So while they're not really going to interpret the color as we are going to, it is going to give them more information about the contrast of the different objects that they're seeing. It will kind of tell them that this light colored or this lighter object is more or is different light than this one. It might be more gray or however they interpret color. So one other nifty thing with being able to sense polarized light is that in the ocean, since polarization increases contrast of things, it can make transparent things like different jellies more visible in open water. Pretty nifty. With each of the different light and observational cues, the cuttlefish is able to know at least what colors and pattern combinations they need to use in order to disappear into their surroundings. Now, this is really a decent summary of cuttlefish camouflage, vision, and some of their decision-making processes, but there is still a lot that researchers are trying to figure out with this system and how exactly the cuttlefish is able to control each of these different patterns and really getting down to the nitty-gritty of how they control it. It is a pretty complex system, and it feels like a pretty magnificent feat of wonder for a colorblind animal to disappear into the surroundings, really no matter what background it's against. This is still an ongoing topic of research, but until we figure this out, researchers will just keep picking up cuttlefish, putting them in tanks with checkerboards, just to watch them blend in and see what they do. Thank you for listening to today's episode and coming on back to listen, and be sure to come back for the next episode. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, and you can also listen on Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, or just about wherever else you listen to podcasts. There are now a few options to help support the podcast. You can definitely share us with someone you know that could use some more fun animal facts in their life, which we all know is everybody. And now, uh, for about the same price as some fun animal-shaped paperclips, you can also become a patron on Patreon at patreon.com slash quirkycreepyfreakypod. You can find the podcast on Instagram, so give that a follow at quirkycreepyfreakypod. And if you have a favorite quirky, creepy, or freaky animal fact, send it on in at quirkycreepyfreakypod at gmail.com. Audio editing and recording is done by me, Olivia Strait. Intro music was created by Kaylee Strait. Thank you for listening.